The scripture for this week is from the first letter of Peter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of God. Have a seat. Let's pray together before we come to this passage. Father in heaven, thank you for gathering us together. Thank you for preserving us. Thank you for calling us your people after your name. Um, throughout this worship service, we've, we've been reminded of all of the ways that you have moved toward us first. Your calling uh, on our lives came first. Your, your forgiveness, your kindness um, is, is, is what moves us towards repentance. Um, your generosity precedes ours. Uh, and now uh, we have the opportunity to sit uh, under a word that you have spoken to us when we didn't know how to ask for it. Um, this is beyond uh, what we could ask or imagine. Um, your word is clear that the heavens declare your glory and that, and that nature itself makes clear um, your power and your majesty and your unchanging nature, but, but when it comes to your mercy and your grace, um, and above all to the fact that you have drawn near, you, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, the eternal second person of a God who is three in one, um, have drawn near, you've humbled yourself. Uh, you were found uh, in the form of a servant and humbled yourself even to death, and did this for us. Those, these are all things um, that we could not figure out for ourselves. Um, these, all these are all things that had to be revealed to us, uh, and we are grateful that we have this word um, in front of us. Father, this week as we, as we come together, we want to pray uh, for the Barnes family. We want to pray for Bradley and for Mita. Thank you for our pastor um, and, and for his family, uh, for how they all uh, have, have labored in our midst. Um, for these last 10 years. We, we pray that you would give them safety these next days as they drive Louisa to college, as they are together with Ben, with Mac. Father, in many ways, they, they represent um, a phenomenon that's, that's very common among all of us, um, that to be separated from family, to be spread out. Um, and so we pray, Father, um, that you would bring comfort and, and that you would bring opportunities for nearness to us. Um, who are, are separated from parents, from, from children, uh, from siblings. Um, we are thankful that we are having more opportunities um, to do that than we have in the past 18 months or so. We, we, are, we are mindful 
that this situation is, is fluid. And, and so we just, we ask for your mercy. We ask for you to continue to preserve uh, our lives uh, and give wisdom uh, to, our, to our leaders. Um, Father, I, I particularly want to pray for those who are separated from family in a way where the separation is more than physical, um, but where there is estrangement, um, where there is a, a, a distance um, at a relational level, an emotional level. Um, this, is a, this is a painful thing um, for any who have gone through this. Lord, you, you, you have named yourself um, in Scripture as a God of reconciliation. We, we have already tasted of that. We have heard of the peace that we have with you, and so we share this peace with each, with each other. And we long for that peace to overflow into relationships that, by human standards, look beyond uh, remedy, beyond repair. Please bring reconciliation. Please give the gift of repentance where it is necessary. Give the gift of forgiveness. Um, Father, it's so often so messy and so complicated. Uh, we need wisdom, but, but, but we need your spirit. We need you to be present um, to, to heal us uh, and to heal these relationships. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together as your people and to pray and to put our cares and anxieties uh, in front of you because you care for us. Um, and as we now come before your word, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, well, as I said last week, the next several passages in 1 Peter are hard passages. Um, they are passages that challenge us, um, they are passages that are not easy for us to understand uh, or to accept. Um, last week I spent some time talking about how Peter doesn't just start giving us these instructions uh, for what relationships are supposed to look like without first reminding us of who we are, uh, of giving us a worldview, of giving us um, a whole understanding of, of, of who we are and what our identity is in which to make sense of it. Um, remember, um, he has said um, that Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus, the one who was rejected, was vindicated, was raised, and has now been made the cornerstone of a building. And we, like living stones, are being built into that building, having been saved from darkness and into light and now given a mission to proclaim, Paul, uh, Peter says, the excellencies of the one who brought us from darkness into light. We are being built together. Um, so this is not an individualistic message. Um, this is a message that speaks to us um, as, as a people. And what Peter is really unpacking over these chapters um, is what he said back in chapter 2, 13 to 17. I won't read all of it, but he said there, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, and then he said this, he said, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And so he's putting in front of us this counterintuitive, countercultural idea that it is possible to be a servant and to be free, to be a person who is free and yet who is subject at the same time. Um, this week... He's talking about how that plays out in the context of marriage. And one thing that we'll say 
repeatedly, but I want to say from the beginning, um, in the context of, of marriage, is that it is not only the wives who are called to be subject. This is a calling for husbands and wives in their marriage to be subject to Christ, uh, to be subject um, to the ways in which he has called them uh, to serve him uh, within their marriage and within, and within society. We're going to look at what this passage says to wives and then what it says to husbands as well. Both are, are addressed. And then I want to spend probably a, a good chunk you know, of our time actually looking not just at what Peter says, but how he says it, and grappling with the fact that he, he makes some arguments in here and, and chooses you know, a, a path, a logic, that my guess is it's hard for us to make sense of it. It probably did not sound very compelling or convincing or intelligible as I read it. Um, and I want us to sit in that and say, how, that, how that might that be challenging all of us um, to sit underneath a word from God that doesn't come at us the way we expect it to and might challenge our very ways of thinking. Now, I think I need to probably deal with some strong objections right up front. Um, namely, the objection when you hear a passage like this that says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Um, the objection is, haven't we seen, demonstrated time and time again, that male leadership, whether it's in the family or in the church, um, and we'll, we'll take a look at, at one of the passages where Paul talks about male leadership in the church, um, hasn't it been demonstrated again and again and again that this leads to the oppression of women? I mean, we have seen repeatedly in the news examples of this happening, as recently as in the past week, headline news this past week. And I know some of you have probably listened to a podcast that came out. I'm actually not sure when it came out. I learned of it this week. Christianity Today did a podcast um, about the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church, uh, which, which is a big church in Seattle. And when you listen to that story, you say, you see, here's an example. Strong male leadership led to the oppression of women. And the first thing I have to say is, is simply acknowledge, yes, Historically, that has absolutely been true. Men have abused their authority. Men have abused positions of leadership um, and have oppressed women. Just like last week, we had to admit that the passage that said, servants be subject to your masters, has historically been used by Christians to justify slavery. We have to acknowledge the same thing here. This passage has been used um, in ways which abuse the text. Um, and which do violence to women. Um, and so, I think in response to that objection, I think I can respond to that with what I would call two cheers. Not three cheers, but I can respond with three cheers, or with two cheers uh, to, that, uh, to that objection. First of all, um, I have to agree, uh, it is wrong when a text like this um, is used in ways which are oppressive. Um, it is wrong when texts like this get used to say, for instance, that all women should submit to all men. 
Um, the Bible never says that. The Bible says that wives are to submit to their husbands, and it talks about um, uh, male leadership, um, male elders uh, in the church. But nowhere in Scripture does it say that all women are to submit uh, to all men. Um, and just like last week, I mean, one of the ways that we said that the passage from last week could not be used in support of slavery and that it was, it was an abuse of the text to do that was to say, you know, look at the whole sweep of Scripture. Um, something similar is here. If we look at the whole sweep of Scripture, it is clear that in the beginning God creates humanity, male and female, equally bearing his image. Um, it is clear um, that it is wrong and that he hates it um, when women are oppressed. Um, last summer, we looked at the story of David, and, and there were numerous examples of this. The story began with Hannah, right, a woman who was oppressed by her entire culture because she couldn't have children. And God's eye was on her. His favor was on her. Um, and that, that kind of story gets repeated in Ruth, uh, in Mary. Um, we saw how David himself and David's family, um, how God judged and condemned those times um, when women were oppressed, whether it was Bathsheba uh, or Tamar, David's own daughter, um, how even his, his failure to act on her behalf uh, when she was wronged, led to just chaos in, 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 his, in his family. Um, it could not be more clear um, that the scriptures will not allow uh, for the oppression of women. And so to use this text in that way, as has been done, uh, is wrong. And, and we need to acknowledge that, and we need to be able to repent of that. Um, the second way I think I can give, I can give two cheers, right? So what's my second cheer? My second cheer to the objection, um, I'll, be, I'll be quicker on this one. Um, we need to be wary, really wary, of importing our cultural stereotypes um, into the Bible when we start asking, so what does this actually mean, like concretely? What, what does it actually mean in a marriage for wives to submit to husbands for husbands to love their wives, to live with them in an understanding way, as, as Peter says here. Um, the Bible does not give us as much detail on that as we would like. In fact, almost none. Um, you know, we tend to, just from our culture, um, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll hear uh, the, the position that this means that uh, the men should be the primary breadwinners, or maybe the only ones working outside of the home, um, and that wives should be the ones primarily doing the parenting. Um, the Bible actually speaks directly against both of those things. Um, I mean, first of all, our notion of what outside the home and inside the home means is, is a very modern concept that wouldn't have made sense 2,000 years ago. Um, but if you look, for instance, in Proverbs 31, you know, the, the, the arc of Proverbs, it, it starts with the father talking about these you know, lady wisdom and, and, and lady folly, and it ends with a chapter about an excellent wife. And one of the things that the excellent wife is praised for is her skill in the marketplace. 
um, her skill in purchasing a piece of land, her wisdom at the gates, which are where negotiations are taking place. This is a businesswoman. Um, and then, on the other hand, when it comes to parenting, um, if you ask what, what does the Bible actually say about parenting, you will find far more instruction directed at fathers as to how fathers should raise their children um, and give them instruction and, and discipline them uh, and be wise and patient. Um, you'll find far more of that kind of instruction directed at fathers than at mothers. Um, this is not to say that I can tell you, here's biblically what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. I, I actually think that's one of the hardest questions that we face. Um, because I think by God has left us a lot of flexibility in figuring that out. It's simply to say that we have a tendency to bring our cultural stereotypes to that question. And we need to be cautious about, about doing that. So those are my two cheers for the objection. Here's where I can't go. Here's where I don't think we should go. I think at the heart of that objection, what, what that objection says, not only to women, I think this is something that our culture is saying to all of us, is that submission and freedom cannot coexist. That if you subject yourself to authority, then as soon as you do that, you have given up your freedom and therefore have given up that part of yourself, your independence, your autonomy, which is most precious, which is most important, which you have to guard the most fiercely. Um, and as I said, the, the, the premise of what Peter is saying here, the, the idea that he is trying to unpack as he speaks to us as sojourners, as exiles, citizens of the kingdom of heaven who aren't home yet, he's trying to unpack this idea that, in fact, it is possible for you to be a servant who is free. In fact, he might go further and say um, that if you try to, to the extent that you try to serve no one, you will find yourself being enslaved to yourself, to your own appetites, um, drawn here and there by whatever seems most attractive to you. So I want us to keep working on this idea of what it means, this countercultural idea of what it means uh, to be a servant uh, who is free. One of, the, one of the ways that we see this clearly, both in this text and in the one before, um, notice that these instructions that were given to uh, servants in the previous passage and, and now to wives to, to be subject, notice that Peter is not saying, um, you know, servants are by nature inferior and so they are subject. He's not saying wives are subject. He's not putting it in that passive declarative voice. Um, which, by the way, the culture around him would have accepted those two ideas. It believed that there were some people who were born to serve, and it believed that women were by nature inferior to men. That's not what Peter is saying. When he says wives be subject, he's giving them an instruction. It's something that they have to choose to do. He's saying exercise your agency, exercise your freedom, in being subject. Again, I, it's, I think it's intentionally um, uh, something that's meant to arrest us and say, wait, what does that mean? How does that make sense? Um, but it's not as simple as saying women simply are subject. So let's take a look then at what, uh, at what Peter says. Um, first to wives, he says, be subject to your own husbands, 
so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. By the way, um, as an aside, Peter seems deliberately to be taking on the very hardest cases. Last week he talked about servants who had unjust masters. Here he talks about wives of, of, of unbelieving husbands. Um, he seems to be assuming that his audience is, at least some of them, are going to find themselves in the really hard situations um, and, and giving instruction to, 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 meet, to meet those. Um, this might, by the way, explain why he has so much more in this passage to say to wives than to husbands. Um, a wife married to a non-Christian husband would have been expected to follow his religion. That was the cultural norm. Um, whereas the reverse, you know, if you had a, a Christian man married to an unbelieving wife, the cultural norm would not have, have been as challenging uh, to, to him. It would have been normal for him to remain a Christian. Um, it would have been much harder for the wife of the unbelieving husband. So that might explain why he has so much more uh, to say here. Um, these wives may be asking themselves, um, if I believe that Jesus is Lord, and therefore Caesar is not, or whatever other gods my husband is following are not, do I still submit to him? And Peter is saying yes. Now, it's a limited submission. I want to I wanna throw that, make, make sure we, we emphasize this. Remember that one of the things that Peter said uh, in verse 17, he said, fear God, honor the emperor, right? Fear God is the umbrella over everything that he is saying. God is the, is the ultimate authority. And so in those cases where fearing God and submitting to a human authority would come into conflict, it's clear that fearing God wins. This is another reason this text cannot be used um, in ways that are oppressive. It, it, this, this text, for instance, could not be used um, to tell a woman who is an abusive, in an abusive relationship that she has to stay. Because to do, to do that would be to subject herself um, to something that is contrary uh, to what God wants. Um, that's something where the church um, has a lot of work to do to know how to be in those situations in a role of support. Um, I'm glad that some of that work is being done um, in our denomination, in other denominations, in our, in our country. Um, but Peter says, subject to that limitation, yes, wives should still be subject uh, to, their, to their husbands. And he points out that counterintuitively, this is one of the ways that the kingdom grows. Um, not always by means of argumentation, he says this can happen without a word. And in some ways, it could be a merciful thing, you know, to say to a woman who's married to an unbelieving husband, not every conversation has to be the argument about faith. Um, you, after all, have to live with this guy. You have a life to live. Um, and you can trust that God is able to work not only through your argumentation, um, but simply through your life, simply through your, your conduct. Um, what he says about 
external adorning. Um, this is a part where I would expect there's only one of two or three places uh, where as you were listening, um, this might have rubbed you the wrong way. Um, this, might have, this might have come across as, as offensive. Um, Peter is speaking into a culture in which women had almost no means of exercising uh, their own power, their own agency. Um, what they could do uh, was put their wealth on display, visibly. Um, and what he, is, what he is saying is that is not the way that you ought to exercise, exercise power. Um, now, how do we take that? Well, on the one hand, I, I, we would probably like to tell ourselves that we live in a much more enlightened society um, in which um, the culture doesn't demand um, that women look a certain way and doesn't judge them by their outward appearance. That is not true. Um, our culture might be worse, if anything. Um, but the other thing that I, that, I want, that I want to point out here is that the way that Peter would, would direct us doesn't simply say, you know, if you think of these, this external adorning, the braiding of hair, the clothing, if you, if you think of those as being, okay, so those are the stereotypically female um, ways of, of exercising power um, or of, of, of finding meaning. Um, notice that Peter does not direct his readers to instead pursue stereotypically male ways of exercising power and finding meaning. Um, and this is important. Um, I remember hearing a story, I think that this was from Catherine Leary Alsdorf. I couldn't find it, so I might be misattributing this. Um, but, but Catherine Leary Alsdorf is a woman, she was the founder of the Center for Faith at Work at Redeemer. She co-wrote Every Good Endeavor with, with Tim Keller. Um, and before she came to New York, she had like a 25-year career as a successful entrepreneur and executive in, in Silicon Valley. And the story that she told was, you know, there, there, there came a point in her life where she decided, you know, she was not going to pursue meaning and significance through the typically, stereotypically female ways of doing it. She was not going to rest all of her worth in whether she was married or, or whether she had children. You know, and so she threw herself into her career, right? And, and after years of doing this, she looked around and she wasn't happy. Um, in fact, she was anxious all the time. She was on the verge of depression. And what she says is, I realized the problem was, all I had done was I had substituted, instead of going after these stereotypically female idols, I decided I'll go after these stereotypically male idols. And the problem wasn't that the culture had been oppressing her over only to one stereotypically female side. The problem is the idolatry. The problem is that none of these idols work for anyone. So it's important that we notice that what Peter says here um, what, he, what he commends is that he says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. He's not steering them away from stereotypically female idols to stereotypically male idols. 
He's sending them somewhere totally counterintuitive. Now, let's take a look at what he says to husbands. I'm going to come back to verse 5 and 6. As I said, I want to look at how Peter makes this argument, and I think 5 and 6 are the crux of it, as well as the most confusing part. So we'll come back to that. Let's look at what um, Peter says to, to husbands. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Um, Notice that he says, show honor to the woman, just as he previously said, honor the emperor. Uses the same word uh, for, those two, uh, for those two relationships. Um, what that word means is act according to the value of this person. And he immediately fills that in. Heirs with you of the grace of life. It's a reminder of Genesis 1. It's a reminder that male and female equally bear God's image. That male and female equally have been given this blessing, this vocation by God uh, to fill the earth and to subdue it, to rule over it as his, as his stewards. Um, and the stakes here are high so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter essentially says to fail to live with your wives in an understanding way could actually represent a block as you pray. Um, what it means uh, to live with your wives in an understanding way, that means live according to knowledge. So live according to knowledge of the value of your wife, but, but also live according to knowledge specifically of her. Get to know her. Understand her. Um, This is also a form of subjecting ourselves to Christ. It's similar to what we have in, in Ephesians 5, where um, in, in Ephesians 5, Paul says similar things. In, in 521, he says, I want all of you, all of you, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he fleshes that out with, Wives submit to your own husbands, and husbands love your wives. Those both somehow has to be forms of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ultimately, our submission is to Jesus when we get to this. Um, what this is reminding us of is, is, is yet again um, that the, the dichotomy that we set up between submission and confrontation, between submission and freedom, um, is a false dichotomy. On the contrary, because we are free, um, we can serve. Um, one thing I think is worth pointing out um, about this passage before we turn to verses uh, 5 and 6. Um, we tend to equate um, authority and leadership. Um, we live in a meritocratic society where those two are, are kind of equal um, in, a lot, in, a, in a lot of ways. Um, but if we look biblically and say, what, 
what is authority? When God gives authority, um, what, is that, what does that mean? What we see time and again is that what authority means is God laying on a person a responsibility to bless those around them, to bless those over whom they're in authority, and at the same time, a blessing that enables the fulfillment of that authority. We see this in Deuteronomy when he's talking about kings. We see it here in 1 Peter. In chapter 5, we're going to be talking about elders, and we'll see the way that, that Peter talks to elders uh, about how to exercise their, their authority. Um, primarily, this is an outworking of the way that Jesus spoke about himself in Mark 10 when he said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life um, as, as a ransom for many. Um, even, as, even as Peter and Paul um, instruct uh, that, that husbands are to exercise authorities, authority within their marriage, that laid on them is this responsibility to bless uh, and to see to the spiritual well-being of their family, um, as well as uh, saying something similar to elders um, in, in the church. Um, we see throughout Scripture women being called to and gifted for all kinds of forms of, of leadership. Um, in the Old Testament, we see Deborah um, leading in battle. Um, we see Hulda serving as a prophetess. When you turn to, to Paul, Paul lists more women as ministry partners when he, when he says, you know, say hello to this person, say hello to this person, so-and-so greets you. He lists more women as ministry partners than men. Um, and yes, some of them are wealthy patrons that have, that have cared for him with generosity, but a lot of them um, are women who were, were, were exercising gifts uh, of, of service, gifts of teaching, gifts of, of leadership um, of various kinds. My favorite example um, of, of, of this, um, it comes from 1 Samuel again. You can tell I, I like 1 Samuel. Um, this is actually a passage that we, we, we didn't get to look at last summer. Last summer we looked at, um, we used the Psalms to organize the, the way that we looked at, at the life of David. And there's no Psalm that comes out of this one passage. But in 1 Samuel 25, there's the story of David and Abigail. And this is not a perfectly clean example. David and Abigail are not married, at least not yet. Um, and then when they do get married, it's not exactly something I would say was exemplary in how that comes about. Um, but the story of David and Abigail, David is, um, he has amassed quite a bit of power. He's not king yet, but he is a force to be reckoned with. He's providing protection for certain people in various areas. One of them is this man named Nabal, uh, whose name means fool, because the Old Testament is not always subtle with the foreshadowing. Um, and he goes to Nabal and says, we've been caring for you. Could you share some of your food with us? And Nabal says, who is this David? and just brushes him off. And David's response is, okay, everybody get the swords. We're going after this guy. And, she's inter and he's intercepted by Nabal's wife, Abigail. Um, and it's brilliant what she says. She comes to him and she says, David, I know who you are. I know what God has promised you. I know that he's gonna be faithful to those promises. So listen, when you are king, when he's been faithful, when he's, when he's kept all his promises to you, 
don't you want to be able to say that I never once lifted up my own hand in, in my defense? I never once shed blood in defending myself. This, by the way, is right after David has spared Saul's life, so that might be going through his head. And he basically says, you're right. I was wrong. Um, and you have prevented me from a great evil. Um, it's this beautiful example where Abigail absolutely exercises leadership without usurping David's authority. She actually appeals to his authority. She says, because you are going to be king, because you are going to be put in this position with this responsibility to bless the nation, um, think about the kind of king um, that you want to be. She appeals to his authority, but her wisdom, her leadership, end up saving David from doing something evil and foolish. And he ends up exercising his authority better because he listens to her. Um, I think this is a, a, an instructive example uh, for, what this, for what this can look like. Um, all of this does beg the question, okay, but why? Why has God called husbands into a position of authority in their marriages? Why has he called wives to submit to them? Um, and here's where I want to look at verses 5 and 6. Um, Peter writes, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Um, now, like I said, when you, when you hear that, that might not seem like a very compelling argument. In fact, you might wonder, like, what on earth is he talking about? I'm not sure what he means, but I don't think I like it. Um, here's the interesting thing. In most of the places where Scripture talks about relationships between wives and husbands, and also in 1 Timothy 2, um, where it talks about um, the office of elder um, being reserved for men. Peter or Paul, whoever's writing, keeps going back to Genesis. They keep using Genesis to, to back up what they're saying. And they do so in some interesting ways. Um, here, Peter's referring to a story from Genesis 18. It's the, it's the story where um, an angel of the Lord, or it might be the Lord, you know, comes and says, one year from now, you're going to have that son that I promised, right? And at this point, Abraham is 99 years old. Um, the text repeats again and again, Sarah had had no children. They are old. They are old. It keeps saying it. Um, and if you know that story, it might occur to you, Sarah actually does not come across in that story like the stereotypical of, picture of a submissive wife. Um, she actually says... You know, she laughs under her breath. Um, she says, my Lord, referring to Abraham, is 99 years old. And will I now have pleasure? And if you're wondering if, if you know, the Bible is prim and proper enough that 
you know, will I have pleasure? That must mean the pleasure of having a child. Nope. Um, she is saying, we are old and sex is difficult. Um, the Bible is not beyond being very direct about this, and neither is Sarah. Um, and yet, Peter says this is a case where she is submitting to him. Why? How can, how can he say that? You have to remember the context. Genesis 18 comes after Genesis 16. I know you know that because that's mostly counting, but um, in Genesis 16, Sarah said, look, we are old. This child is not coming, so you better go have a child with that woman over there. And Abraham takes her servant, Hagar, and they do have a child uh, named Ishmael. And that was an example of Abraham and Sarah um, fearing something that was frightening in Peter's words here from verse 6, fearing that God was in fact not going to be faithful to his promise and taking it into their own hands. What's happening in Genesis 18, what Peter is talking about is that Sarah and Abraham together are finally saying, okay, this still doesn't make sense. Sarah is still laughing under her breath. Um, and her laughter, the Hebrew word for laughter, sounds like Isaac. It ends up being the name of her son. Um, but we're going to do it your way. We're going to submit to you uh, together. Um, 1 Timothy 2 does something very similar in explaining why it is, um, you know, Paul says that women don't teach with authority. He says, and this will be another one where you might not be sure what he means and you won't like it. He says, 1 Timothy 2, 13, he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. On a surface reading, that sounds like Paul is saying that women are more gullible than men. But what is he talking about? What happened in the fall? Um, God had arranged things so that arranged things so that humanity was meant to rule over creation. And then within marriage, he had given the husband this authority, this responsibility. Um, Satan, when he came into the garden, and it doesn't even say Satan, it says the serpent, so you have a snake. What happens there is an animal goes to the woman. She convinces her husband to eat all of them ignoring what God has said. Satan managed to turn the entire structure on its head. I think Paul is referring to that, and I think when he says she will be saved through childbearing, what he's referring to is what came right after that in Genesis 3. Satan had come along and said, you can't trust God. He's not your friend, I'm your friend. And what God says to the woman is, I am going to put enmity between you and the snake. Actually, I think he says to the snake, I will put enmity between you and her offspring. Um, I'm going to redraw those lines of friendship the way they're supposed to be. And salvation is going to come through a descendant of this woman. One of the descendants of the woman 
um, is going to crush the head of, of this snake. What both of these passages are doing, I think, is they're directing us to places in Genesis where the focus is not on how good and faithful the people were being. The focus is entirely on the faithfulness of God, entirely on his faithfulness to make and then to keep promises and to move this story along, this rescue along uh, towards, towards salvation. Um, the other passage that we have to look at here, of course, is Ephesians 5. Um, when, when Paul is talking about wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving their wives in Ephesians 5, he also goes to Genesis. He cites Genesis 2.24. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, that verse, ask yourself, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Does that sound like something that has happened very often? Can you think of many cultures in which men have left their families and have gone to join their wife? Or, or just restrict yourself to Israel. Is that the way the story goes? Did that ever actually happen? Um, Abraham's son Isaac did not leave home. Abraham sent his servant to get Rebekah and bring her back, right? Um, the next generation, Jacob left home. That's because he was fleeing for his life. Um, and then first chance he got, he came back with his wives. Another example of every time there's polygamy in the Bible, it ends poorly. Um, he comes back home, right? Um, this command, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, that almost never actually happens in actual human relationships. Why? Because this verse also is pointing where Paul says it to. It's pointing at Jesus. The only husband who ever leaves his home and goes to hold fast to his bride is Christ, is Jesus, who humbles himself who takes the form of a servant in order to cling fast to, in order to preserve for himself, in order to save his bride, the church, all of us. Um, I think that what Peter is doing here and what Paul is doing in those passages is constantly directing us again and again to the faithfulness of God. And this, and this fits Peter's letter. Remember, the theme of this letter is you are sojourners and exiles, and you have an eschatological, otherworldly hope. Your citizenship is elsewhere. But that citizenship, that hope, makes it possible for you to serve in the present, where things are hard. Um, I want to say one more thing about this passage. I know I've been running long here, and it's, and it's hot. Um, I want to say one more thing about this passage. Um, there, there is, there is a, a temptation to think that a passage like this is directed at those of us who are here that are married uh, and not those who are not. I want to talk about what this passage has to say to those of you who are not married. 
Um, there's a few things. One, this passage and others like it throughout Scripture remind us that marriage is a good thing. Marriage is a gift. Um, if you are not married and you want to be married, I, I want to affirm that's a good desire. It's a good thing to want. Marriage is a good gift. But at the same time, this passage and many others like it remind us that as much as marriage is a good thing, it's not an ultimate thing. It's not the thing. It is, it is, it is not the way that the Bible addresses the problem of human loneliness or isolation um, because he's given us to each other and he's knit us together as one family, as one body. Um, and this passage reminds us that marriage is hard. Um, if, if, you, if you are not married and you imagine that when you are married you won't be lonely anymore, that is not true. Um, there is still loneliness inside of marriage. There is still struggle inside of marriage. Um, husbands and wives um, need these words, need to be reminded. Um, the last thing, though, that this passage says to all of us, really, to everyone who's here, um, again, is, is what Paul says, that marriage, ultimately, the great value, the highest value of marriage, is what it's pointing at. This is why marriage isn't an ultimate thing. It's because it's deliberately intended to point beyond itself at Christ and the church. Um, every human marriage is just a pale picture of the marriage that we're all made for, that is the ultimate thing, in which we will find satisfaction. When Christ comes in his glory and we all together partake of this wedding feast of the Lamb. Um, we, we are going to a table now, which is a foretaste of that feast. Um, before we go there, let's pray together.